0: working in their lives as well. And then uh, we will begin a series on uh, the um, purpose-driven life is, is what it used to be. But it's why, why. what's the purpose? Why does God have you here? And we're going to be looking for six weeks at that topic on what God has actually done when he has saved you and all that, it, that accompan- accompanies that. And we're going to be doing that for for six weeks, and that'll take us right up to Easter. So that's kind of the process and and what we will be looking at for the next seven weeks here. We're in the life of Joseph, and uh, we've learned a lot already. We've looked at his dysfunctional family. We've looked at the idea that no matter what Joseph faces, he always seems to focus and be driven by this idea of wherever I am, I want to glorify God. And so we've seen Joseph, whether he's at a Um, in the pit, whether he's a slave, whether he's in a position of power or leadership, he's always serving. He's always looking for an opportunity that no matter what his circumstances, he sees past his circumstances and he sees his God at work. And it's been a challenge for us because so many times we live just the opposite. We're so focused on our circumstances. And Joseph just simply trusts God no matter what. And that does not mean he's had a life of ease. Last week, we talked about the idea of Joseph getting promoted, and we talked about the idea that that now he is the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, and realistically, he's the second most powerful person on the planet at that time. He's 30 years old when he starts that role. And he is living, you need to understand, he's living in uh, the finest of the finest. Uh, He's surrounded by riches and wealth and gold. He's surrounded by having the power to just simply look at someone and basically say, you're dead, and have his head taken off and never be questioned. He's in this situation in which this 30-year-old Hebrew country kid is now ruling over Egyptians. And there's only one person in all of the world that does not bow to him, and that is Pharaoh himself. So that is where we're going to pick up our story this morning, and we're actually going to see a family reunion. Uh, Now, unlike any family reunion, I don't know, you may have been to one like this or not, I don't know. But anyway, um, so bear with me, we're going to read a lot of the passage in in Genesis 42, and uh, uh, then we're going to talk about it for us. So here we go. Uh, When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? (laughs) Get up and go do something. He continued, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there, buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Again, they're in Canaan, and, and it says, then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. He'd already been down this road before. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as, they saw jo- and as, soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Now remember, over 20 years had passed, probably closer to 27, 25 years, or whatever. And, and as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. And he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, then he remembered his dreams about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are the sons of one man, your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father. Now, it's the first time that he knew Benjamin was alive, or even his dad was alive. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more, which would have been Joseph. Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother, so the rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested, to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving household. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said one to another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but he, we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against that boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them. Since so Joseph was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and he began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, but to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give him provisions for their journey. After this this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and they left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened a sack to get feed for the donkey and saw silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God hath done to us? So that's where we're going to end the story. Let's make sure we have a good comprehension of it and um, uh, get to some things, and then we'll, we'll dive into, I think, what God has for us this morning. You have to understand at this point, when Joseph starts his reign, he's, when Joseph leaves Canaan, he's 17 years old. When Joseph starts his reign in Egypt, he's 30 years old. So we know for sure that 17 to 30, even with new math, okay, is 13, all right? We know that there's famine in the land, so that means we've already gone past the seven years of plenty, all right? So at the minimum... It's 20 years have passed since Joseph saw his brother. Realistically, we're probably two to three years into the famine. So probably closer to 23, 24, 25 years, somewhere in there. And in this scenario, by now, Joseph has two children. He has two sons. In addition to that, you have to realize that Joseph has been in Egypt now for 20 plus years. He has now been, quote-unquote, Egyptianized. So he looks like an Egyptian. He speaks like an Egyptian. He acts like an Egyptian. And I know, exactly, some of you are thinking what I end up thinking. And I know, kids are going, what? What are you talking about? Well, just talk to somebody who's over 40. Uh, anyway, but he looks like an Egyptian and he speaks like an Egyptian. So here he is, all Egyptianized and His brothers come in front of him. Again, he he doesn't look like a Hebrew. There is nothing physically Hebrew about him. And as he's supervising all of this and looking at this, he sees his brothers who he recognizes. They don't recognize him. And so as they're standing in line, they need food. And so Joseph then when, he get, when they get there in line, Joseph says, again, I imagine at this point he's sitting on a, a chair supervising this or whatever else. He says, who are you? And they start to tell their story. We're 10 brothers. There's actually 12 of us. We're 10. Our youngest is with his father, and one of them has died not realizing the dead man they're talking to is Joseph, in their minds that Joseph is, is is still alive. Now, I have to fit this in the message somewhere. So this is a personal rabbit trail, all right? Um, so let me just throw this in there. Because I have Christians in here. I have people who, who don't know anything about Christianity. I have people in here who, you've been Christians for just a, a, a short time. And I have people who have been in Christianity for 30, 40, 50 years. And i got to try to like give something to everybody a little bit, so... So for those of you who have been at this thing for a while, let me give you something that's fairly interesting in this passage. The Hebrew word, when, when, the, when the Bible says, Joseph recognized them, the Hebrew word for recognize has a root word that goes all the way back to when they brought Joseph's coat of many colors that they had dipped in blood, and they brought it to Jacob, and it says Jacob recognized it. It's the same idea. He actually, the the text actually links those two things together. It also, in this text, there's a phrase in there where it says, Joseph pretended to be a stranger. It actually is the same idea that the brothers are sitting up at the pit trying to decide what to do with Joseph. It's the same idea that they were pretending that that he doesn't belong to them at all. In addition to that, there's this passage, and it says, when Joseph remembered the dream, it's a fascinating study. I could have preached on any one of these things, but that's why I want to get it in here. When it says he remembered them, it's the same thing that God says when God remembers Rachel and gives her a son, it's the same word. It's the same idea when it says the cupbearer remembered Joseph. It's the same idea. So there's this remembrance theme that's weaving its way through this whole story as well. That was free. So back to our story. Okay, so back to our story. Joseph recognizes that there's only ten brothers there. And in his dream, everyone bows down, including his father. So somehow Joseph has to get his father and his, bro- and his youngest brother there. So he plots this thing. Now, some Bible commentators believe that Joseph does this to get even with his brothers. I don't think so. And the reason that I don't think so is at the end of this story, when Joseph sees them, he actually weeps. If he's angry, he's not crying about th- this thing. I think this is, and we'll talk about this after Easter, so you've got to wait at least seven weeks. Um, I really think, I think Joseph has forgiven them. But Joseph doesn't know if he can trust them yet. And there's a difference between forgiveness and trust. We'll talk about that in seven weeks. So anyway, so in this story, this is what you see. You see this idea of Joseph then puts them to the test, and he accuses them of being spies. And he throws them in, in, in prison, if you will, for three days. Let them to think about this. And as they're thinking about it, originally Joseph was going to say, one of you is going to go get your brother. Then he changes it because as he thinks through this, and again, Joseph was always forward thinking. And as he thinks this through before he executes his plan, he realizes that his brother and his dad are still back in in Canaan starving. So out of the goodness of his heart, not only does he give them food, but he gives them provisions for their animals, and he decides to give them their money back. So again, you know, this is his daddy he's taken care of by doing this. What I think is interesting in this story is Joseph really breaks down as he's telling them, and he has Simeon bound. Now, there's a lot of questions. Why Simeon? Uh, Reuben was the oldest. Um, a lot of people believe because Reuben was the one who tried to protect Joseph, Next in line would have been Simeon. Jewish rabbis taught that it was Simeon because Simeon was the one who was the main instigator. We don't know that. That's just Jewish tradition. But he has Simeon bound in front of them and hauled off. And then, and again, the whole time, they're sitting there going, again, you you have to realize this. This... This has happened 22, 20 plus years ago. They sold Joseph into slavery. This happens to them. And the first thing they go back to is 22 years, 20 plus years ago. In their mind. They are so consumed with guilt that even when something good happens to them, they see it as God doing something to them, not God providing something for them. So as we go with this, as we go to this story, there's all kinds of themes that run through this, but there's one that I think I want to zero in on because I think it has the most application for us. Um, and, and, And it's this idea of guilt. It's this idea of how does God get your attention? Because here's the thing, God's got their attention now. After 20 some odd years, of forgetting about Joseph, thinking he was dead, not giving him another thought, or maybe, I think, eating away at them the whole time. When they find themselves in prison, they immediately go back with a guilt-ridden conscience to what they had done to Joseph. In fact, so much so that they're having this discussion among themselves, not realizing Joseph understands exactly what they're saying. And Joseph is so moved by it, he can't contain himself. And I don't know how he did this. I don't know if he's sitting on a throne and he says, "Uh, excuse me, guys, i got something important to go take care of. And he goes behind a curtain and bawls like a baby. But it breaks his heart to see his brother struggling like this, but he knows in order for them to, to, to do well, they've got to have to struggle here. And God is trying to get their attention. And what's interesting here in this passage is, even when something good happens, they think God's mad at them. God's doing something to them. And so, they had never actually, in fact, I'm going to suggest this as we get go to the end of the story, what you're going to find is this. I think they go to their graves with guilt. And you're going to see this when when, when their dad dies. They're still feeling guilty over what they did. So, Here's the application. Here's the thing that I think we, we need to wrestle with. What's God doing to get your attention? Now, you have to ask yourself that. In other words, how does God get your attention? What is God doing in your world where he's trying to say, look, here's something that you need to deal with? See, what happens is we do a lot of things. When, when, when God speaks to our heart about something, sometimes we just ignore it. These guys had ignored it for 20-some-odd years. Um, sometimes we just simply blame other people with it. I mean, we're, we're in a culture that just, just loves doing that. Sometimes we just try to blow it off. And, and when we're honest with ourselves and we start to deal with it, then we start to grow. Then we start to do what God wants us to do. So what I want us to do is I want us just to wrestle with this little thing of this morning of this issue of guilt. And, and I want us to understand it. Um, in the world, the world, the world system has this whole thing about guilt. Um, and in the world system, what you're taught, what our society, what our community, what our culture teaches you are things like this. They'll say, they'll say things like, guilt is a sickness. We just treat it like a sickness. It's something that plagues you, and here's a prescription for a couple of things that will help you feel less guilty. We have a culture that will tell you that guilt is because of your beliefs. The reason you feel guilty is because you have this set of beliefs. And if you will get rid of those beliefs, or if you will change those beliefs, you won't feel guilty anymore. In other words, there's somebody else to blame because you feel guilty. Because you shouldn't feel guilty. You should live a happy, fulfilled life. And if you're feeling guilty, and because of some system or some, or in some cases, what a church is teaching you or what the Bible is teaching you or what, so, so let's remove that, and then you won't feel guilty anymore. Um, we're dealing with this in Sunday school right now when we're talking about this issue of integrity or you just shift it to something else. In our culture, what they will teach you, what they will tell you, what they will drive home to you is it's somebody else's fault that you feel guilty. You should not feel guilty. You should not be made to feel bad. Now, honestly, that's like lipstick on a pig. It may look a little better. It's still pig. And you're still going to deal with guilt. And you're going to have to deal with something with that guilt and understand what that purpose of that guilt is for. That guilt, that guilt has a, re, a purpose for being there in your life. That's God poking you. That's what God's doing. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to say, this is something in your life that, that, that is dangerous. You need to go deal with this. <clears throat> Most of you know you only know anything about me, you know, one of my hobbies, one of my passions is glass blowing. And, and to the point that we're very, very fortunate in that I've been able to take half of my my shed in my on our farm and turn it into a glass blowing studio. Um, and so we I don't get to do it as much as I want, but right now we're trying to do it once every two weeks. Um, and normally what happens is it's, it, we set it up to do it in an evening and uh, we, we blow glass. But in... in in, in that end of our shop, um, the furnace sits at about 2,100 degrees. The glass that we work with, a typical working temperature for us when we're molding it or shaping it or doing something like that, a uh, typical working temperature, once it gets down to about 1,400 degrees, we got to heat it back up. That's too cold. So um, it's, it's, it sounds incredibly dangerous, and, and it is if you're not paying attention. Um, but it's incredibly fun and, and all that kind of thing. Now, what's happened in our in our deal is when we blow glass in the evening, we, we, I, we don't eat. So what happens is we've started this thing where well, while we're blowing glass, somebody one or two people are working at the furnace and, and, and somebody else is taking a break and, and, and all that. So don't feel bad for us. I, mean, I got a refrigerator out there. i got a whole snack bucket. Um, Last last time we were in the shop, uh, I did, uh, uh, what do you call those things? Huh? Taverns. Yeah, taverns. Had a crock pot out there. We got chips. We got everything. So, so what happens is it's kind of become a party. So, you know, JT will even come over and Aaron and I got the two ki- grandkids and my dog's in the shed and Jean's not by and then Alex comes by and I got, and, you know, last time she brought her dog. So now we got two dogs in the shed. And. The three of us are blowing glass, and we got all of this happening. So what we did when we set this up, we wanted to be safe. So here's what we did. We took, and, and those of you who know me in orange tape, you'll appreciate this. When we work in the projects, um, all of my tools have orange tape on them. And so at the end of a project, when it's like we're picking stuff up, I'm like, it's got orange tape on it, throw it in my, in my, in my truck. Or I throw it in my uh, van, except for Dan Ronfelt, who used to take my orange tape off of my stuff. Um, Laughter. <laughs> well, anyway, that's what he'd do. He'd take my tape off. I'm like, I don't know who this is. Uh, and if I liked a tool, I just went and put orange tape on it. No. Um, but anyway, so anyway, so orange tape. So this is what I do in our shop. We have a, a bench, and then we have an area that we'll work in a glass plane, And on, the, on the, the ground is orange tape. There's a big, long line of orange tape, and there's a the orange tape on that. And the rule, if you're in the shed, is no one goes past the orange tape. Because once you pass the orange tape, even though it may not look hot, we may have just taken a 2,000-degree glob of glass and rolled it across a piece of steel that looks cold, and if you put your hand on that table, you're going to walk away with third-degree burns. It doesn't look hot. Now, I've got two-year-olds in there. i got a dog in there. i got my family in there. It's like a circus on the other end of the shed. we got music playing. I mean, it's kind of a party. And then there's the orange tape on the floor. Even my dog knows. Don't go past the orange tape. It's dangerous. If you're on the other side of the orange tape, you got to know what you're doing. On this side of the orange tape, hey, you know, I got my kids. You know, I got I got one of those little rolling carts that you sit on when you're working on cars. You know, they're zipping around on the on thing. Um, it's it's crazy. But the orange tape. That's, yeah, that's what we deal with the whole time. So the orange tape says, this is dangerous. Stay away from that. What do you think happens when my dog meanders past the orange tape? Lulu, back! You know, what happens when one of my grandkids starts to get close? Death, no. Gene. no. (laughs) You know? Why? Is it because I'm angry at them? Is it because I'm trying to get, is it because I'm trying to, no, here's what I wanna do. I wanna get their attention. And I want them to not cross the orange tape. Because I don't want them hurt. I love them too much. I love them too much. The purpose of me paying attention, the purpose of me yelling at them, the purpose of me poking them, if you will, to say, don't do this. Is out of love. And you know what? I want them to respond. And I want them to respond right away. I don't want them to go, oh, okay, thanks, Grandpa. I'll think about it. Let me go see if, let me go play with the hot glass. No. No. There may be a time that you're allowed past the orange tape, but you're going to know how to do that stuff. And at two and at six, that's not the time. Why? Because I want to keep them safe. You want to know what guilt is? is? It's God poking you saying, don't go past the orange tape. It's God looking at you and saying, look, you don't understand, but the choice you're making, the direction you're going, the thing that you did has dangerous consequences. And I want you to feel bad. I want to get your attention so you know you need to change that because if you don't, it's not going to go well for you. I want what's best for you. So you go, well, you know what? I love coming to church, but here's the problem with coming to church. I come to church, and I'm feeling so good. And then you preach, and I feel so bad. You know what? Thank God that you feel bad, because you know what that is? That's God saying, I love you. I care about you. I want you to get this fixed now, because it will hurt you if you don't. That's a loving father yelling or getting your attention so that you stay safe. In the same way, I could simply ban my kids from there, my grandkids from there. I could simply, but, but, but again, you know, we were in there the other day, the end of the shop where the furnace is. It was 90 some odd degrees at that end of the shop. The other end of the shop's 80 degrees. When it's cold outside and the wind's blowing and everything else, I mean, you gotta step outside to cool. And my dog, who's an outside dog, you don't think she loves being in there? I mean, I have to pick, drag her out at night because you're like, I really don't want to go. So, but, but I mean, that's the thing. She, I want to I have them in there. I want to have my kids in there. I want everybody to be able to experience it, but I want everybody to be safe. Same thing for you. God wants what's best for you. And so God is poking your conscience. God's saying, you know what? You need to change this. You need to go do something about this. In this situation, he's poking the conscience of the brother saying, you need to deal with what you did to your brother 20 some odd years ago. It's still haunting you. Deal with it. Own it. Confess it. Change it. You know, be honest with your dad about what you did. And, but they refuse to deal with it. In fact, they go to their grave not dealing with it. And the guilt eats them alive. And that's what you'll find about guilt. You'll find that what happens is if you don't deal with it, it'll continually eat away at your life, even to the point that when good things happen, you think they're bad. This is Joseph looking at his brothers going, you know what? I love you. I love my dad. I love, I love my brother. You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to not only give you your grain so that everybody can be fed, I'm going to give you all the money that you brought, so that you can go back and you guys, I have taken care of you because I love you, I care about you. As soon as it happens, you know what they say? God did something bad to us. You have grain, you have your money, it's a great day. Can they see any of that? No. You know what guilt will do in your life if you don't deal with it? Even when God brings good things into your life you will see it as bad. You will see on it, it will sow, eat away and destroy and shape you. And here's the thing. That's Satan at work winning. Think about it for a minute. When I yell at my kids in the shop, or when I yell at somebody who crosses that orange line, am I doing it because I'm mad at them? Am I doing it because I want them to have a miserable time? No, I'm doing it because I love them. God does the same thing. He speaks to your heart because He loves you and He wants what's best for you. Not because He wants to harm you or or mess your life up, but here's the thing. Some of you were brought up in churches that you believe that's what God's role is. What? You're having fun? Whap! Christians can't have fun. Even good things, you misinterpret. Why? Because the guilt is stuff that you've never done with. You simply simply acknowledge it and confess it and change and then let it. We're going to deal with this when we talk about the series that we're going to go through here. And, And we're going to talk about our calling. We're going to talk about when you get saved, here's what God does. And one of the things that God does is he puts your past in the past. And Satan's job is to bring your past up and dangle it in front of you so you feel guilty about it, so you walk away from God. By the way, there's a test for you. You want to know how if you, you want to know if your guilt's from God or Satan? Here's an easy test. What's your response? Is your response, I need to get right with God? It's from God. Is your response, I need to throw in the towel and forget this whole Christian thing? Satan. It's a real easy test. You know? And for my kids and anybody in that shop, and if you come in the shop and you cross the orange line, I'm going to yell at you too. Why? Because I love you. I care about you. I don't want you to get hurt. Why? Because that's the mindset, and that's what God's doing. So when God pokes your conscience, this is why I say. One of the fascinating study in the Bible, study second chances in the Bible. Here's what you will find. A lot of times in the Bible, God gives second chances. But God will never obligate himself and guarantee that you get a second chance. The the book book of Jonah is fascinating about this. And God came to Jonah a second time. You know what God said the second time to Jonah? The exact same thing he said the first time. But, Jonah had a whole different attitude now. Because Jonah realized, I need to be obedient. I need to do what God says. And even out of God, even that, God did out of love for Jonah. And I just want to challenge you, because some of you are really hung up on this, and you've got stuff in your past, and you, you let Satan beat you up on it, and you let the guilt eat away at you. And if you don't deal with it, you're going to be just like Joseph's brother. And it is going to start to taint everything you do. And even when good things happen, you're going to interpret them as bad. And I just want to challenge you because sometimes I think we forget this. It's like, why is God so mad at me? (laughs) You know, I don't understand. Why did Grandpa yell at me? Grandpa yelled at you because you crossed the orange line. Well, yeah, but he was really loud. I mean, louder than normal. And he sounded so angry. That's because it was really dangerous, honey. And because he loves you. He didn't sound like he loved me. Sounds like he's mad at me. Am I not parroting how we talk about God? Is that not how we see it? That's not it at all. And this is what I challenge you, that God often, when you and I start getting ready to cross the orange line, so to speak, We'll use guilt to poke our conscience and say, you know what, this is not good. You don't need to go down this road. This is something you need to change. It's not out of an anger, ruin your life, make your life miserable. It's out of love and compassion to help you make the best choices possible and live the life that he intends for you to live. It's for your safety and protection, not because he's angry at you. And we need to step back and try to understand uh, look teenagers you don't get this yet. You will one day. The reason your parents are on your case all the time is because they have lived enough lifetimes enough of your lifetime to know what lies beyond the orange line. In some cases it's personal experience because they crossed that line. And they know the price they paid. And they don't want to see you go through that grief and that heartache. So yeah, they're on your case. But they're on your case because they love you and they know what lies beyond the orange line. And we have to understand that. And God is the same way. And I just want to challenge you because I know sometimes we blow this off. And it's like we just want to ignore are conscious. We want to ignore the guilt. We want to ignore the God poking us saying, you need to go change this. It's out of love and compassion that God's doing that. In fact, here's what I would say to you. If you can run down and go past the orange line and keep going past the orange line and God's never poking you, I would be worried. I would be worried. Because God's still poking you, you just can't feel it anymore. And that's what becomes very, very dangerous. I I understand this. And again, those of you who know me know I'm not the safest person in the world when it comes to power tools. Um, But I've cut off enough tips of my fingers that... uh, And you don't think about this, but do you know that the the finger things on all these phones work because they, they, they feel blood vessels and stuff like in there? And when you cut off the tip of your finger it don't work anymore. So I'll be on, i be on that stuff and I'll be going, okay, which finger can I use that starts to work, you know? Um, why? Because there's no feeling there anymore. The nerves have been severed and if you continually say no, 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 no to God, what happens is God continues to poke but you don't feel anymore because you don't, you, you've severed that. The Bible calls it searing your conscience. You don't ever want to get there. And if you're going, well, I can just go on. God's not doing anything. Then you've seared your conscience if you're really his child. And that's an even more desperate reason to get back and and make it right with him and deal with what you need to do with So I close this morning with this idea. Joseph and his brothers are tested. Joseph is forced to confront his past, and he's in a position to seek revenge. But he doesn't. His brothers have to deal with the consequences of their choices. And God's at work in everyone to accomplish his plan. What's God doing right now to get your attention? And how are you going to respond? Make the right choice. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, a lot of times none of us like our conscience being poked. None of us like guilt. None of us like the things that come with it, Lord, it comes from a loving God who wants what's best for us. So, Lord, whatever it is that you've been uh, ringing our bell, poking in our lives, where Lord, we keep over and over, over again reminding us of a need to change, a need to go a different direction, Lord. I just pray that you continue. And most importantly, Lord, that we would not just hear, but that we would respond, we would do something about it. So that, Lord, we can live life as you designed and intended life to be lived for us. And, Lord, use us. May we see your loving hand in all that comes into our lives, even the difficult stuff. And uh, use us, these things we ask in your name.